Pray with me, Father in heaven, we come now to the scripture. We pray that you would enable us to, to, to possess uh, the truth that is here, that it would be uh, transforming in our lives, uh, that you would be glorified in it. And so, God, we pray that you would overcome any resistance that we might have, that you would uh, cause our desires really to be with you. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Turn, please, to Joshua uh, in chapter 14. Joshua in chapter 14, I want to read beginning with verse 6, and then I'm going to read another passage, just a couple of verses out of Joshua chapter 17 as well. But we'll begin with Joshua chapter 14 and verse 6. Hear the word of God. Then the people of Judah came to Joshua at Gilgal. And Caleb, the son of Jeph, Jephunah, the Kenizzite, said to him, You know what the Lord said to Moses, the man of God in Kadesh Barnea, concerning you and me. I was 40 years old when Moses, the servant of the Lord, sent me from Kadesh Barnea to spy out the land. And I brought him word again as it was in my heart. But my brothers who went up with me made the heart of the people melt Yet I wholly followed the Lord my God. And Moses swore on that day, saying, Surely the land in which your foot has trodden shall be an inheritance for you and your children forever, because you have wholly followed the Lord my God. And now behold, the Lord has kept me alive. And just as he said these 45 years since the time that the Lord spoke this word to Moses, while Israel walked in the wilderness, and now behold, I am this day 85 years old. I am still as strong today as I was and the day that Moses sent me. My strength now is as my strength was then, for war and for going and coming. So now give me this hill country of which the Lord spoke on that day, for you heard on that day how the Anakim were there with great fortified cities. It may be that the Lord will be with me, and I shall drive them out, just as the Lord said. Then Joshua blessed him and gave, him Hebron, gave Hebron to Caleb, the son of Jephunah, uh, for an inheritance. And therefore Hebron became the inheritance of Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, the Kenizzite, to this day, because he wholly followed the Lord, the God of Israel. Now the name Hebron formerly was uh, Kiriath Arba. Arba was the greatest man among the Anakim, and the land had rest from war. Then turn to chapter 17 and verse 12. So I want to read verses 12 and 13. Notice the contrast. Then the people of Manasseh could not take possession of those cities, but the Canaanites persisted in dwelling in that land. Now when the people of Israel grew strong, they put the Canaanites to forced labor, but they did not utterly drive them out. Now what I want to do this morning in a minute is draw a contrast between Caleb and these other Israelites in the context of driving people out of the land. Now remember where we are. Obviously we're in the book of Joshua. This hits us at a point of history really redemptive history, but history uh, where the Israelites are entering into the land that had been promised to Abraham hundreds of years before this time. You remember that they went into Egypt and they were enslaved there. Miraculously, God uh, uh, delivered them through the work of Moses, come to the Red Sea, went through the Red Sea, and all of that came to Mount Sinai, received the law. And then at that point in time, after that, they left and they went to an oasis called Kadesh Barnea. And there, they were on the very edge, the very cusp of entering into this land. And this was 45 years 
prior to this moment of which we read. But 45 years before that, they were right on the cusp of entering into the land. And you remember, I suspect, what happened then. Uh, Moses sent 12 spies into that land. Ten of them came back saying, there are giants in the land. We're like grasshoppers. They're going to step on us. And so, therefore, we can't go there. We can't take this land. Caleb and Joshua came back and said, yes, we can. And the reason we can is not because we're so strong, but because God promised it to us. And if he promised, us to, promised it to us, then he'll deliver them out of the, drive them out of the land and enable us to take it. Now, that was a very dangerous thing for Caleb and Joshua to say, because at that point, all the people began to pick up stones to throw at them, to kill them for that report. The glory of the Lord, the Bible says, shone so that they weren't killed. But, but it was a dangerous position uh, to take. But now we find ourselves that uh, uh, the Israelites in the land having won decisive battles. So if you were a map maker in that part of the world and you drew a map of this territory, you would put as its uh, occupant Israel. Now, they hadn't driven everyone out by this point, but they had driven, uh, driven most out and had had uh, the biggest victories so that the land was essentially theirs. And so once they got into the land, it was going to be divided up into 12 different territories, and yet there was still some resistance in each territory. And so Joshua said to the heads of the territories, to the head of the families that would, would take those particular territories, he said, now you go into the land and drive out anybody that's there. And they had the right to drive out everybody that was there for a number of reasons. One, you remember, God had given it to Abraham and they were Abraham's descendants. Two, you remember, that this was really a judgment against the people who lived there. Because God waited until their sin was of such magnitude that they no longer deserved to live. And so he used Israel to judge these people and to drive them out. That's why the battles exist. And then they were to drive them out because if they didn't drive them out, it would be very dangerous for them. For instance, we read in Deuteronomy in chapter 12 and verse 29. You don't have to turn to that unless you're quick. But Deuteronomy 12, 29 puts it like this. When the Lord your God cuts off before you the nations whom you go in to dispossess, and you dispossess them and dwell in their land, take care that you uh, be not ensnared to follow them after they've been destroyed before you, and that you do not inquire about their gods, saying, How did these nations serve their gods? That I may do the same. You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way, for every abominable thing that the Lord hates, they have done for their gods, for they even burn their sons and daughters in the fire to their gods. So God is saying, you need to drive them out. It's judgment against them. This is your land, it's inheritance. Plus, by the time they got to entering into their particular territory, Israel had already won the decisive battle, so the land was really theirs. But then he says, don't leave them, because if you do, you might make peace with them. If you do, you might say, tell me about the gods you worship. And if you ask that question, and then you're intrigued by the gods that they worship, you may come to follow after their gods, at least after their practices. And I want to tell you the end result of that. They offer their children to death for their gods. So don't go there. Drive them out. Don't let them stay. Drive them out. Don't make peace with them. Drive them out. 
Now we come to this particular time and, and the land's being divvied up and Caleb remembers the promise that was made to him. Now Caleb, of course, by this time is 85 years old and amazingly says that, that he's as strong today as he was in the, the day, in the day that Moses first sent him. That was 45 years ago. His strength is, is, is at this present time as it was then. So God had preserved him in great strength. And so he comes to, to Joshua and he says, give me this portion that was, that was promised to me. I'm, I'm ready to go in uh, and take it. And this is, is such a reflection of the very faith that Caleb had. Because back in the day, back when he was one of the spies, and back when he came back with this report and everybody turned against him, we saw the faith of Caleb. That faith that said, no, God had promised us this land, therefore we can, we can go in. And at that point in time, Caleb and Joshua became, in some sense, because of their faith, isolated from everybody else. Nobody else believed them. And then they would live all those 40 years in the wilderness. I mean, Moses believed them, but, but the people were against them. And they wandered in that wilderness for 40 years, and yet he still maintained faith. And through that, we can see that, that faith has, in so, to some degree, an isolating effect. In other words, our faith has the tendency to isolate us from unbelievers. They simply don't have the values that we, that we do. They simply don't understand as we understand it. And we know that. Our kids know that. Do you know how difficult it is? Although everybody in high school and junior high knows this, how difficult it is to be a Christian kid in a junior high, a Christian kid in high school. You know how difficult it is to be a Christian college student in a class where your professor is against Christians and belittles, to be in a situation in a dorm, in a fraternity, in a sorority, wherever, where the values concerning sexual purity, concerning marriage, concerning just about everything, is quite different than how our Christian kids are wired now. And it's a difficult thing, and it's an isolating thing. You know, isolating it can feel to be a Christian businessman in the midst of an office where, where, where no one seems to understand sexual purity, no one seems to understand even certain measures of ethics, and yet here you live and, and you have to be, and yet this isolating effect politically, we feel isolated because we're radically um, for the sanctity of life and the holiness of marriage and the care for those who are disenfranchised, and justice. And yet, we live in a culture that does not value those very same things. Even in our personal lives with friends and neighbors and all that, as we cease from gossiping, it isolates us. Sometimes there's nothing to talk about in certain circles because everybody's just ragging on everybody else. And, and we don't do that, or we shouldn't do that. And yet, what do we say to them in the midst of that and what do you say and how isolating is it when, when you're invited to go to a particular movie and you go you know I can't go see naked people can't go do that uh, it's an isolating effect as well in fact the, the gospel itself causes us to be isolated from our very culture by its very nature the scripture says for instance in Romans chapter 1 the gospel is the power of God unto salvation for those who believe that's that little word salvation that's the kicker because that means that we need to be saved or rescued and the very essence of the gospel is this sense that human beings need to be saved that human beings need to be rescued 
that implies that we're helpless in some way, that we can't save ourselves. So the, 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 the belief, the understanding of Christians is that we need to be saved. We need to be rescued from something, something bigger than us, something stronger than us, something we're stuck in, something we can't get out of ourselves. And yet we live in a culture that says, no, we're self-sufficient. No, we can do this ourselves. And as Christians, we say the thing that we need to be saved from is God. We need to be saved from His judgment. Saved from His wrath. Because of our own sin. We need to be saved from our sin that leads to God's judgment against us. And we live in a culture that says, no, 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 no. God accepts everybody. It's all right. If God exists, even, He accepts everyone. And we say, no, we need to be saved from our rebellion against Him. And our culture says, no, we don't really rebel that much against God if He exists. And we say, oh yes, we do. Because inherently, we don't honor God as God and we don't give thanks to Him. That is, we don't give Him the, the due that he, is, that he deserves, which is to yield ourselves joyfully and totally to Him. And to look to Him and say, tell me who I am. Define my life. That's giving honor to God. God is the very one, you see, who defines us for He made us. And to honor Him as God is not to look inside to find who we are, not to define ourselves by our own passions and inclinations, but to go to God and say, tell me who I am. Define me. Who am I to be? And He says, I've made you to be in my image, to be a reflection of me. And we say, therefore, who are you? And that's really the question, of course. And then He reveals Himself to us as one who is love, Father, Holy, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. As one who is just. As one who is merciful. As one who is kind. As one who is compassionate. And all of these things. And He says, I want you to be like that. That's the problem, of course. Once he tells us that, and once we look into our own lives, we go, I'm not that. And he says, oh. And that's a great injustice. It's a great injustice against God for us not to be like that, for us not to honor Him as God. And the penalty for that injustice is that we get cast from His blessing that is that we're judged. And so when we talk about salvation, we're saying we need to be saved from that, from our sin, from that judgment. And the world says, no, really, we're okay. We really don't need that. And then we look to Jesus and we say, He is the very one who is our Savior. He's our Rescuer. He's the one who saved us. And, and how is it that He did that? He did it by, by living perfection, by living a perfect life for us, a righteous life that we might have His righteousness, taking our sin upon Him so that He would take the very wrath of God. And then as believers we say, that's the way, that, that the only way, in order for us to be saved, to be rescued from our sin that leads to the judgment of God. Bring that up at a cocktail party. As well, by the way, you should bring it up. But you see, that very nature is so contrary to our culture that like Caleb, we understand uh, when it isolates us. 
because of simply what we believe. But Caleb had that faith that would be willing to risk that because his vision, his heart, his eyes were set upon the promises of God and the glory of God. And he knew what God had for him was better than anything he might lose by being isolated from others. He was willing to stand before that whole culture and say, no, we can go into the land. Trust me, we can go there because God has promised it. Let's go. Even when they turned against him, you have the sense that Caleb would be saying, okay, Joshua, how about you and me? <laughs> he didn't, that's not in the Bible. Uh, but you get that sense that, 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 that what was there waiting for them, even though there were giants and all of that, he was able to look past that and said, we can get there and this will be good because this is the very place that God has for us. Let's leave all this behind. Let's go there. Let's leave the safety of the environment in which we feel, at least at the moment. And let's go there, even though it's risky, even though it seems dangerous. But let's go, go there. And then Caleb seemed to have this, and this is a funny way to put it, I suppose. When I wrote it, it seemed funny. Uh, but his faith seemed to have what for me is a patient tenacity. Patience because it took him 45 years to get there. This promise had been made 45 years before. And so he walked it out for 45 years not receiving it. And it wasn't an easy 45 years. 40 of those years were spent uh, or so a wandering in the wilderness by about 38 and a half. Spent wandering around, getting nowhere, nowhere closer to what he had been promised, other than he knew all those people were going to have to die. I, don't, I shouldn't think. I shouldn't even think what I just thought. Um, but I just wonder, I just wonder Caleb's emotions at a funeral in the wilderness. Uh, I, I just, just think about that for a minute. He's going, well, it's sort of bad, but it's sort of good. Because, you know. <laughs> now. Yeah. So he held on to that for 45 minutes. 45 minutes. 45 years. <laughs> Just trying to track when I have to go home with her. Um, but, uh, I'm good. <laughs> but 45 years, he held on to that promise with a tremendous tenacity because there he was. And even when he was finally faced with entering into the land, you catch a real twinkle in his eye. This expression where it says... Yeah, it may be that the Lord will be with me and I shall drive them out just as the Lord said. That, that may sound on its face as sort of a doubting kind of expression, but I don't think it was at all that the language doesn't, doesn't let us think that really, the context, because, because he's, he's saying God has promised this to us and you get a sense that there's a twinkle in his eye because the Anakim are there. And the Anakim, we learned last week, were the giants that were in the land, the very ones that he had seen. And you get the sense that right after he says that, so now give me the hill country of which the Lord spoke on that day, for you heard on that day how the Anakim were there with great fortified cities. You get a sense that he's been sort of chomping at the bit for 45 years just to see what God would do with those fortified cities and just to see what God would do with those giants. And so he said, this may be the time. So I'm ready to roll. I'm ready to go. Let's, let's take on the giants in the land. And not only that, this passage says that um, the name of Hebron formerly was Kiriath Arba because Arba was the greatest man among the Anakim. So you have a sense that this is their capital city. I mean, this is the, if you can... If you can beat them there, you've beaten them. 
And so you get a sense that Joshua is saying, I know it seems dangerous, and I know they're bigger than us, but God has made this promise, and it's going to be so exciting to see what it's like once we get there. Can't I go now? And he's led to do that. Chapter 15, I won't read it, but verses 13 to 19, he goes in and he takes the land. Uh, some people are with him. I'm sure he's not just by himself. So he has uh, 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 some other uh, people from his family, probably in the tribe of Judah. And they go in and they, they actually, they actually take, this, take this land. Then take a look at chapter 17 and verse 12. Let's look at that again. So yet the people of Manasseh, as one of Joseph's sons, remember that Joseph's allotment as a tribe was split between Manasseh and Ephraim, his two sons, Levi, the tribe, didn't get any land, so that's how we got 12 out of that. That the people of Manasseh could not take possession of those cities, but the Canaanites persisted in dwelling in that land. So the Canaanites were there because the people of Manasseh in their section... Um, couldn't drive them out. Verse 13. Now when the people of Israel grew strong, so it wasn't because they were too weak. They had grown strong. You get the sense they had sufficient strength. When the, now when the people of Israel grew strong, they put the Canaanites to forced labor, but they did not utterly drive them out. And you go, why not? They were strong enough. Why didn't they drive them out? Now if you're a reader of Scripture, and you read Judges chapters 1 and 2, you'll find that in not driving them out, there were all kinds of problems. The very thing that God had said would happen, that you'll start following after their gods, happened. And so it was horrible for them because they didn't drive them out. But the question is why. Francis Schaeffer, who's a relatively dead guy, hasn't been dead that long, but quotable now, um, uh, puts it like this. He says, the people of God who did not go on to do what God told them to do was for two reasons. That is, they had two reasons for not driving them out. First, they wanted peace at any cost and in spite of God's commands. Second, they wanted wealth. So he says, the reason that they didn't do it was they didn't drive them out because they wanted peace. It was easier. And then they wanted wealth. That is, they made them slaves, essentially. They made them serve. And so they would have this wealth that would be generated by having this group of forced laborers. He goes on to say, therefore, they were practical materialists. For the sake of ease and money, they didn't go forward and do what God told them to do. Tribute, 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 they demanded. And they let the people stay in the land. And through the time of the judges and beyond, instead of gaining grounds, the Israelites slowly lost it because they had not possessed their possessions on the basis of God's promise. And then Schaefer goes on with a question, and I always hate it when he does this. He says this, does that sound up to date? Does that sound just like now? Worse than that. Does that sound just like us? That rather than driving out the enemies of our souls, we make peace with them. Rather than driving out the enemies of our culture from our lives, and even from our culture in ways that I'll talk about maybe Wednesday night, one Wednesday night, I don't know about this one yet. Even from our culture, 
but do we make peace with them? Because it's easier. And because we think that if these enemies of our soul can just stay there a while in certain ways, it will be very satisfying to us. And we will receive great benefit from having them there really. That sentence I read out of the parable of the sower is a scary one. It really is. That's one of the scary parables of Jesus. Hope sometime before I retire or die, I get a chance to make a list of all the scary passages in the Bible. This is certainly one of them. Mark 4, verse 13. Jesus said, you understand this parable. How then will you understand all the parables? The sower sows the word, and these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. And when they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes the word that is sown in them. And they're the ones sown in the rocky ground, the ones when they hear the word immediately, they receive it with joy. They have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. When tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, they immediately fall away. And, and this one and others are the ones sown among the thorns. They are those that hear the word. But the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word and it, and it proves unfruitful. Now, people always ask me uh, about this parable. Do I think those first three uh, groups upon where soils upon where the seed fell are Saved people or lost people? And I believe they're lost people. There's only one group in this whole parable that's saved, and that is the last group that bears, bears fruit. But there is confusion in those two middle ones because it appears the word comes up with joy. It appears something happens, but, but then it, it doesn't last. And Jesus said, he who perseveres to the end will be saved. And you know me if you know me. If you know my theology, you know I don't believe that one who is born again can lose one's salvation. But I believe that there are warnings to us. Part this was given to disciples to, to give them encouragement to say that when you share the gospel, four things can happen and three of them are bad. Right? So don't, 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 don't be weary from that. Don't let that discourage you. But, uh, but when I read it as a believer, even though I'm probably as secure in my salvation because of my understanding of the cross... It makes the hair on the back of my neck stand up. And I have to ask my, myself the question, am I making peace with those things that will choke out the word of God in my life? And I began to think of some of these things. For instance, I wrote this. I said, uh, I said it's easy to make peace with sin in general and enjoy what it seems to provide than rather to repent, especially in a culture that overlooks so much, by simply making a good appearance, shaking loose of the most obvious and socially despised sins, than living a life of real, honest repentance from sin. I mean, isn't, it's, it's kind of easy just to sort of shake off the ones that embarrass you. Shake off the ones that others can really see. And keep the ones that nobody can really see tucked away inside. There are socially acceptable ways, even in the church, and the body of Christ, to be a materialist and have everybody just sort of let you do that. I mean, and, and I'm, not, 
I, I'm not, this isn't a guilt trip on, on, all right, it's a guilt trip on everybody at least. But, but I'm not saying there's just a few of us out here. This is a problem, people. This is a problem for me. It's a problem for all of us. It's so hard. Maybe it isn't hard. Maybe we just make it hard. But we struggle, don't we? I mean, we know these things. We struggle with materialism. We struggle with how much is enough. We struggle, do I like that thing too much? Do we struggle with, am I being pushed in my vocation out of wealth or what? I mean, those are struggles. And if we deny them, I think we're missing a great deal of our own spiritual growth. But it's easy to make peace with those things. It just really is. And we make it easy on each other because we like each other and we're all nice and all that sort of thing. And I don't want you to make it hard on me, so leave me alone. But, just for everybody listening to that on tape, I smiled after I said that. Um, but it really is. It's easy to make peace rather than to repent. It's easy to make peace and enjoy the bitterness and anger and self-pity that comes when we're hurt. Rather than to pursue a course of forgiveness and reconciliation. It's just this. It's easy to think that bitterness and the anger that we feel when we're hurt will actually bring a certain measure of satisfaction to us because we deserve to feel that way because after all, we were really hurt. And if we feel that way, perhaps we can make the person who hurt us feel that way too. All right? And we like that, so we make peace with that. Now, we're good at it. Good enough that nobody really challenges us on it. Good enough for people to come and say, oh, I understand you're hurt as well. They should when we get hurt and all that. But, but you get my point. It's so easy to make peace there rather than follow a course of radical forgiveness and reconciliation even when the hurt is still there. I must say to you, and I don't know too much about the Amish culture. I really don't. And I don't know too much about the Christianity that comes in Amish form. But I have to tell you, there's something, and I don't know if this is sincere or not, because I'm not there, but there's something amazing about the Amish people being kind to the wife of the man who killed their children. Again, I, I, I can't evaluate that from a Christian point of view. I don't know all their spirituality and stuff. I'm assuming the best. But that's not making peace with bitterness and anger. That's possessing that which Christ bought. I probably could do that. It's easy to make peace with lust and sexual fantasy and receive the enjoyment that that brings rather than repent and discipline your mind by God's Spirit. It's easy to make peace with apathy, apathy and ease and enjoy the self-centered life than to live sacrificially for the benefit of others. It's easy to make peace with pride, making ourselves look good to others rather than to live in the humility that living honestly and open, openly before others brings. Uh, it's easy to make peace with our riches by pursuing wealth and protecting it with all that we have that we may enjoy the feeling of security that comes than to live sacrificially, trusting in God to provide. It's easy to make peace with our self-centeredness rather than to live putting the interests of others ahead of our own. You know how risky that is? Do you know how risky it is to spend time putting the interests of others ahead of your own? 
Because the first thing that comes to mind is, who will look after me? Now, if you listen closely, I think there's one named Jesus who says, I will. But that's a risky thing, isn't it? But we would all affirm in our Bible studies, we'd all affirm in our, in our covenant groups, we'd all affirm in our own quiet times, we'd write it in our journals. I should look after the interests of others. Oh, but it's so easy to make peace with our own self-centeredness, isn't it? I know this is lofty stuff and high stuff, but just... It's easy to make peace with our passions, our anger, lust, bitterness, pride, and to drive them, drive them out of our lives. They're such friends. They've been with us so long. We wouldn't know what life would be like without them. But you get a sense that Caleb was thinking, I can't wait to get into this land. Now, I know there's problems. There are people called Anakim, and they're giants, and I know they're big and strong and all that, but God promised it. And, I, and so he was glorying in the promise of God. He was glorying. He was boasting. He was confident in what God had promised to provide for him. And he says, I'm going to go and I'm going to get it. Because that's the very best. I'm not going to stay back here and, and just on the fringes. And I'm not going to put the Anakim to work for me and, 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 and make them pay me and all of that stuff. I'm going to drive them out even though what they could provide for me wealth-wise and what they cost me because of battle-wise may be enormous. Uh, I'm still going to drive them out because I'm going to trust that la the land will be better without them and my life will be better without them and my family will be better without them and our community will be better without them. So I'm going to drive them out. And, and so he was boasting and all of that. And that, you see, I think is one of the points behind this great sentence in Galatians chapter 6, verse 14, where Paul says, May it never be that I should boast, save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. May I never boast, save in the cross, that is, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, said it positively. May I only boast in the cross of Christ. And you may say, well, why can't I boast in other stuff? Good stuff happens all the time. I must confess to you that one of the... Yeah, I could say it this way. You'll understand this. Proudest moments in my life is these days watching my son with his son. I have to tell you, she's going to cry. I have to tell you. I didn't say this first service, but I have to tell you, it just is. I, I love to see that. And that's a great boast, if you will, but glory. I just enjoy that tremendously. Well, how does that stack up with boasting only in the cross? Well, because the only reason I can experience the good blessing of seeing my son with his son is because of the cross. Because, you see, we're all sinners. None of us deserves any good thing. And so the question is, why is it that we receive anything good? Well, it's only because of the cross. Most especially in the life of believers. In the life of unbelievers, it's only a temporary thing that the cross brings even God's reprieve for a moment. Because, because the cross has happened means that God can be patient and God doesn't have to show his justice immediately and he can let even rebels live. But in the life of the Christian, I realize that every good thing that I have comes from the cross. So while I'm glorying and seeing my son with his son, I'm glorying in the cross. Because it's the cross that has provided that very good thing for me. Because all I deserve really is hell. 
And so we glory in the cross and only in the cross. And therefore, we, to, we look at the cross and in it we see the very promises of God. And he says, what am I promising you in the cross? I'm promising you forgiveness of sins. Take it. Possess it. Don't live in your guilt. And it's so easy to make peace with our guilt. It's so easy to have it around. It's so easy to make peace with self-pity and all of that. And, and Jesus says, get rid of that. You think that's helping you. It is not. You needn't stay there. Possess the possession of forgiveness and cleansing and freedom from guilt. I bought it at the cross. It's real. Take it. And that's true with Christ being formed in us as well. We live in various kinds of sins. But yet we look at the cross and we boast in it. And what does the cross promise? It promises for freedom from the dominion of sin. And we say, but I've, I, I don't know anything else. I mean, this, I'm so comfortable in my sin. I'm so comfortable in these things. This is where I've been living all these years. And he says, trust me. I know it, it, it seems like you will not live without this. But repent of it. Turn away from it. Keep fighting it. Keep driving it out of your life. Don't make friends with it. Drive it out of your life. Because... Its absence and the presence of the character of Christ will satisfy like nothing else could ever satisfy. I say, God says, trust me on that. I say, that's how we're to pray. Hallowed be your name. God, I want your name to be holy. I want your name to be honored in my life and the lives of others. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God, I want your rule, the very rule of Christ to be in my life. And he says, yes, follow me. And in the lives of others. Now we can think that this must have taken great faith on the part of Caleb. Uh, it seemed like it would after all. But the Bible rarely, if ever, speaks in terms of great faith, in terms of quantity. In fact, there was a time in the life of the disciples that they came to Jesus and they said, increase our faith. Luke 17 and verse 5. Jesus had just given him one of his amazingly lofty teachings. Uh, it was about temptation and it was about forgiveness, interestingly enough. And they said to him, Luke 17, 5, the apostle said to the Lord, increase our faith. Now, I would think, if I had asked Jesus that, that he would have smiled, patted me on the head, and said, good boy. That's exactly what I want you to ask for. More faith. And, and therefore, you know, here's another five pounds of faith. Although I wish it would calibrate it in different, uh, not pounds anyway. But uh, here's some more faith. Um, but he doesn't say that. Notice what he says. If you had faith like the grain of a mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. So it's not about quantity. You get the sense he's saying, what's important about faith is its object. It isn't so much having big faith in God. It's about having faith in God. He's big. He's huge. And to compare faith with him, the key is he can do it. The key is his promises are true. The key is because of the cross of Jesus, as Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, all his promises, all God's promises are yes 
in Jesus. How can they be yes in Jesus? Because he already took all the no. He already took all the bad. He already took all the punishment. And now he's saying, trust me, everything that I'm promising you is good. And at, the, at its face, it may not look all that good. It may look scary to enter into that land. It may look scary to get rid of these things that we're so comfortable with in the course of our life. And it may be so countercultural that we don't know how we could ever do that and face our neighbors, even face people in the church if we did that. But he said, no, 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 no. It's good. It's good. Grab it with every ounce of your being. Drive out everything that's contrary to what Christ has bought. Possess everything that he promises you. Let's pray. Father, God, I pray for me and for us. That you would enable us to trust you like that. That we would see who you are. That you are good. That we would glory in the cross and we'd see everything that's true about it. So we'd take joy in nothing else. And joy only in anything else because of the cross. So Father, be with us as a people, as individuals. You would enable us to drive out of our personal lives, out of our church. You would work in us to drive out of our culture by the gospel. Everything contrary to you that we would possess the holiness and the righteousness and the love and the forgiveness and the peace and the justice and the compassion and the kindness and the gentleness and the humility and the patience, and the joy, and everything that is ours because of what Christ has done. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand for